You're listening to a DM podcast. It's long, long been the most enduring genre in podcast land. I think the main basic reason is is that essentially it's like a campfire story, right? You know, it's sort of this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and it's also got a very central easy premise it's like who done it it can be as simple as that and that because you've got such a great driver people just want to know the answer and they will stick with you they love the detail welcome to behind the podcast and to episode two of our exploration into true crime i'm anthony and with me as always is jules g'day we're so pumped to be joined today by ian walker while you might not know his name directly you've definitely heard of some of his podcasts He's the brain behind one of Australia's most successful podcast franchises, Unravel, as well as a number of other titles coming out of the ABC, where he's the executive producer of narrative non-fiction podcasts. Podcasts like Homecoming are seen as trailblazers in terms of podcasts becoming TV shows. But you can make the case that the Unravel series is truly groundbreaking. It was originally pitched as two seasons of TV and three seasons of podcasts. Unravel Season 4, Snowball, just won the Best True Crime Podcast at the Australian Podcast Awards, with Season 5 currently in the works. The pod daddy of Australian podcasts, Ian's passion for documentary and finding stranger-than-fiction stories, saw him transition from radio and TV easily to podcasts. Ollie Ward was the Triple J content director for 10 years. He's a producer of Unravel Snowball, and the story is his brother's. How did you come across it? Yeah, this this was a wild one where it just really happened in the lo- in the lobby, right in the, the cafe downstairs. I, I'd known Ollie for quite a while because I was, you know, in the podcast space, and I was going to meetings as when he was the head of Triple J. We got to know each other. I talked to him for a long time, trying to get in his ear about, you know, the Triple J really should be doing podcasts, man. We need your audience. We want your audience. They, they're going to be hungry for podcasts. He didn't listen to me at all <laughs> <But> <laughs> until one day when he really did what a pitch his own podcast and um he wasn't sure that the story that he had there was a podcast in it you know he thought oh maybe people just think that that was like a revenge trip for a family because it happened to his family it was sort of like yeah but who else wants to know about that this thing weird thing happened to my family and it was pretty bad and yeah it was pretty weird and so he told me the bunch of things that happened which ends up kind of as all the things that he'll tell you in the episode zero trailer for the show. He told me the thumbnail of what had happened to his brother. I said, what and what and what? And it's like, oh, man, I think, you you know, you really might have a show there. Like, I don't think you should discount that. And the other thing I knew about Ollie is that he was the boss of Triple J and he didn't get to do this stuff much anymore, but I knew that he was a naturally born really good storyteller and the things that I'd heard him make himself over the years were really top class and that he had just had this natural knack for telling stories. Got a good with people. And I guess also at that time, it was sort of almost like that sophomore album problem, you know, that how we're going to top these really dark stories that we've been doing and unravel. But this is a true crime, but no one dies. The lead bad person is a woman who's really canny. She's quite charismatic. People are falling in love with her. She's done this sort of scam, globetrotting the world. This is really kind of a new take on on our genre, right? And also that it's got that big personal investment of having a family that you can get to know who've gone through this traumatic thing and and kind of stay together. I mean, by the end of the series, I think we had like 
tens of thousands of people who wanted to adopt the Ward family. You know, they had fans yeah, all over the world. They, warm, they, they really love them, you know, love their very cute Kiwi accents, but more than that, their kind of spirit and the love that they kind of, you know, shared and the, the way that they got through it with very good grace. And, you know, there, there wasn't really a revengeful moment, you know, maybe a few moments, but they passed. It's so interesting because the whole way through, you sort of, you try and put yourself in that perspective, like what would you do? What would your family do? And the, and the way that they go about it, they're so thoughtful about her, mm. you know, what she's gone through. Mm-hmm. They're happy just to reflect on the time that they had and what it ultimately led to. But it's, yeah. it's amazing to see. Well, it's an amazing story. It's the best true crime podcast of the year for 2020. Yay. The Australian Podcast Awards. People loved it. Yeah. What's the role of an executive producer then? In, That's a in, good question. Um, nobody knows, right? Because <laughs> not because we can't keep it secret, but it's the weird role where there's there's no awards for executive producers. I try and tell my other people that quite regularly, and hoping that they will start one. It's sort of like the thankless and the also very privileged task of building teams, creating shows. I mean, the nearest thing in the TV world would be showrunner. So I, I know that. A lot of podcast makers from America are starting to use that term because it's it's much better understood than executive producer. Because in movies, executive producers generally are just the people with the bags of cash, right? You can get that credit just coming with your bash of cash. You don't even have to turn up to the meetings, I think. But executive producer in a podcast at the ABC is actually juggling multiple shows. They're kind of the top line of shaping the show keeping the vision clear, initially building it is the way that I do it. Casting the roles of the talent, who's going to host this, um, who are the reporters for this show, actually commissioning the shows, coming up with a kind of longer term plan about where we want to go with a strand that we might birth. And you get to do all the boring stuff as well. So I guess, you know, sort of keeping the, the admin away from the creators or, you know, making sure no one sets their hair on fire, unblocking problems within the bureaucracy, you know, that we don't sometimes get frustrated with. But I guess in my case, you're almost sort of also creative director in that you, you want to get out of the way to let the creative people do their job, but you want to be their best mentor and their freshest ears. My idea is not to be in the dailies all the time, to let them bring you the new version, the new draft, the new script, and then help them by being their editor, by feeding back on what you hear, what they're not hearing anymore. I guess you're also a quality control officer along the way. So there's sort of many, many tasks. And and I think each executive producer, you know, the ones that I know all have bring a different sort of style, their own style to the task. I get the great privilege to be the pod daddy of, of a lot of shows. So that's also good fun. When I think of showrunner, I always think of Liz Lemon in um, 30 Rock. (laughs) (laughs) With something like Snowball, the ones previously, yeah, it is a bit more serious and Mm -hmm. everything. This one is a bit more comedic, I suppose. Yeah. It's not... It was funny, right? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Like things like the voice actors that you use to reenact emails and things. Mm -hmm. Like what goes into that? And and is that something that they pitch along with the show? You think like, okay, we want to put something forward that's a bit more lighthearted or is that something that you sort of say and... Listen, I've done a lot of these dark ones recently. Yeah, that, that's interesting how that came about. I mean, to explain the end of Snowball, I, I actually did get to sort of take off my EP's hat for a bit and get my hands a bit more dirty for the end of the show. So we also have a supervising producer, which is a really critical role. Our guy at the ABC is a guy called Tim Roxborough, who's a bit of a legend 
now in Australia with these plot-based shows because he's definitely our lieutenant, my lieutenant there. He moved on to the 11th and I had to come in and finish the mixing for Snowball and that was great because my happy place, my other happy place is really you know, in a mixing studio with a, with a really great sound designer. On the tools. Um, yeah, I, I'm not so great on the tools at that point but I love directing them so I've been in a lot of mixes and, and so I did get to do that stuff for Snowball and I think it was aligned more with the kind of work that I've done in the past, which is a little bit more gonzo, like I'm more your kind of gonzo guy. I could see that us stylizing that interactions, those emails that Leslie Manukian created, writing to herself, which is just the craziest sort of notion, right, to fool a whole lot of people that she was in a universe that didn't actually exist. I mean, I thought she was kind of a genius in in one level you know like oh, harry houdini stuff was yeah. so good <laughs> Dini, i mean there was so the great joy of this show was that of all the shows i've made this is the one you couldn't write right as a fiction they would just say oh bullshit you know get out of here there's no way we're going to get away with that with the audience if you wrote it as fiction they're the kinds of stories that make doco makers like me you know get up out of bed in the morning it's like non-fiction will always trump fiction in terms of its weirdness and its even its poignancy, you know, because there's there's actually real moments on tape. So I think that's what still attracts me to that side of the of the job. Uh, and then getting yeah, getting deep and dirty with actors. Um, we were casting for people who played it big. We we did, you know, instruct these people to be a bit larger than life because they were inventions in her head, right? So we're we're trying to make it real on multiple levels and and also just have a bit of fun with it because essentially just lying through her teeth and we had no way of getting into trouble for that because these are essentially fabulous lies that she created. <laughs> so you're putting this show together and you released it all at once. Mm. Some of the true crime podcasts, the story evolves as the show goes on and they rely on a bit of that input, particularly if it's something that's a cold case, you know, maybe someone hasn't thought about it for a long time and this sparks something for them. This one, you packaged up, released at once. When you started, obviously the the result in the show involves a trip over to America, won't give away too much, but did you have a sense that, okay, we want to spend the first five episodes setting up the story, doing interviews, then we're going to save the last couple for getting over there, or how does that process work? We definitely did start creating the shows before we'd finished um, with that in mind. Yeah, and the finale, we were never certain that that was going to happen, right? Anything would happen or, or, you know, I was almost certain that nothing w- would ever happen. Why Why would she talk to us? Where? How's he going to find her? Ollie got into a bit of, sort of Ocean's Eleven sort of scenarios. At some points he was going to sort of create these elaborate sort of decoys that he was going to lure her into, like a conference or something or other. There were, there were some crazy notions, you know, about... It was sort of like, Ollie, you, you can't be doing that. Like, you, we're kind of unearthing a fabulous sort of liar mm. and you can't be doing the same thing to catch her. That just won't work. Sounds like you've got so, the inconspicuous Mustang yeah, in there, though. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, he didn't he didn't go very uh, inconspicuous in the end. So we did wargame a lot of different kind of, kind of ending or how he would get to her and how he could do it I guess humanely also not to really scare her. We didn't, you know, we we're really aware of quite serious things, so we didn't want to get her sacked, right? So, being, you know, we didn't want to confront her at a workplace. There was a lot for her to lose. At the end of the day, we all, I think, felt this listening to the show that we've, we feel sorry for Leslie at some point, uh, even though she's brought upon all this stuff upon her own head. And we're not even sure whether she cares whether we're sorry or not because she's the kind of character who 
is manages to get up and start the whole thing all over again. You know, it doesn't really learn. So yeah, the ending was war game, and we knew that we needed to build the whole backstory before we went to America, and we did plan it out that way. But with that big X factor that we didn't really know that we would find an ending and. How would that go if we didn't? That would be a bit of a letdown. Ollie was pretty determined that he was going to get something on tape. And so, how long was Ollie and his brother in the US? And then, I guess, how often are you talking to them and communicating with them when they're over there? We're in pretty constant contact. There was a WhatsApp group that was going pretty night and day. Uh, at that very end point, too, where we really needed to know whether he he'd got anything and that he wasn't hadn't got himself into trouble. Or so some of that safety protocol of just I'm going to go into this situation now and that's meet this right. person, so you know where they are. That's just in right. In case you don't hear from them. Yeah, and we 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 planned a few other things. Ollie had organised to hire a video guy who who could capture the whole thing from from afar. So in that car park, there's also a video guy capturing the encounter. He was only there for. a Pretty short time. It was a couple of weeks, I think. He landed in, in LA, so pretty much how he tells it. They're pretty much driving from those other scenes of the crime, like Lake Tahoe and, and onwards, and then up to Northern California, where he finds her in the end. So, yeah, we've probably given away a few spoilers, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> Did, what week. was the process like for Ollie? I mean, he was still working at Triple J at the time. No, he, he took he took his holidays, actually. Yeah, we. it was a bit of a strange situation in that we, we probably couldn't have afforded to employ him for that whole time. He really wanted to do the show. We really wanted to do the show. The best way forward was him to sort of, you know, basically take a leave for that period and we paid him for that to deliver the show, basically a fee for his time. So that worked out pretty well because it's a bit murky at the ABC. You know, they want to own your um, your IP as if you're a worker there. So anything, any story I come up with, any show I come up with, I don't have any, own any IP on, which is sometimes a point of contention for, you know, creative people. But Ollie's, the the idea that we didn't pay him for his wage for the whole time was that he got to hold on to his IP. So oh. he, that's the other great thing that's happened to this show is that he got many, many offers, fiction mostly, um, fiction adaptations for TV on the back of, of Snowball. The phones just kept started ringing. I had to fend off some myself and he got a lot of people sliding into his DMs in, in uh, Insta. Alyssa um, Milano? <laughs> No, we never got a little Milano. <laughs> oh God, we could we we had we spent so much time trying to war game that we we just prayed that she would initial you know she would come along she would see the fun of it. We got to her people. Ollie's pretty persuasive, right? And we were really hoping that she would play her in in the emails and you know in our show. We thought that would be the funnest thing ever. So the casting, you know, the TV show's still up for grabs, right? He, he might land her, yeah. The Australian TV production company, a really cool company, made the option on a series. And I haven't caught up with Ollie for a little time now, but um, it was all in development as we speak. And they were starting to do writers' rooms and storyboards about how it might be a series. Right, so he's going full Ocean's Eleven and calling up George Clooney for <laughs> so, the part of Ollie. Yeah, we're, and we're wondering who, who he's going to yeah. suggest as cast himself, right? <laughs> Brilliant. And then you chose to release it all at once. Is that a strategy for all podcasts? Or was that yeah, no, that was a special case. I mean, you know, we've been pretty frivolous, I guess, to, to this point. And there were a lot of laughs along the way in this show. But also we were, you know, seriously defaming this person who didn't have much of a reputation to defend because she'd done so many things that we had evidence of. But even so, there was still a risk that, we, you know, she might come at us for defamation. And we understood that and we also thought that there might be some backlash at some point if 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 a bunch of kind of 
media that you know who didn't like us thought that we were being mean to her or you know took her side that they could cause enough trouble to sort of tip the podcast over if it was coming out weekly so it was actually a bit of a defense mechanism that we we had the whole show we were happy with it was completely legal we knew the risk was very low and we knew that if we had everything out there and you could see what we were doing at the end we had so many people would say that they'd binged it within 48 hours and stuff like that. It's sort of like, wow, man, you need some sleep. Go and get some sleep. <laughs> so people here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. It was great mm. to hear that, right? Yeah. The people were so excited. They just wanted to get to the end of it, which I, I loved hearing that. So then, yeah, we, we knew that if people knew the ending and that we felt like we were very fair to her, even though sometimes we were taking the piss out of her emails and that people would be okay with it and there was less chance of it sort of being knocked off the rails. So I think there would have been much more pressure if we were coming out weekly and worried about someone interrupting that or getting injuncted, you know, which mm. probably we would have fought, but it would have been annoying to have to deal with. So they're, they're all the sort of quite serious things we've got to deal with. But we get a lot of very good legal help. We've got an amazing bunch of lawyers at the ABC mm. who are just doing this stuff all the time. You know, their first objective is to make sure we can publish. You know, that's just what they get up out of bed in the morning to do. Does it frame your storytelling a bit as well? I mean, if you're releasing them all at once as opposed to weekly. There's a lot of exposition that seems to happen between those weekly shows and getting everyone back up to speed again if they are listening. I think yeah. this seemed like it was yeah, much yeah. more bingeable and yeah, no, just straight through. I think you're right because, you know, we're all, if we're consuming quite a lot of podcasts, that, that weekly wait. I know a lot of people just personally who like to wait till the show's just completely at run its course right and so they can binge it they don't like that weight and that sort of idea that they're going to lose the threads mm. of the story so i think there is an advantage in one way of having a bingeable item straight up it's a little bit trickier to market because you can have a big flash on day one but the way that we looked at it when we were marketing it was that we were still marking it week by week you know, you never expect everyone's going to binge in two days. That's crazy, right? And people don't find it till they find it. So some people are still finding Snowball, you know, and now hopefully after we're talking about it. So we still think about the marketing as being kind of weekly. We've still got a new episode, so we'll move on the information and find something else to tweet about. So, yeah, the, there are advantages to going out in a batch, but I also understand why that the weekly thing's still a bit of a um, mainstay of how we, how we do those serialised shows. Yeah. And I guess business model will come into that as well. This was the first ABC podcast I'd heard that had ads in it. it also had the option where ad three, if you listen on the ABC player, mm -hmm. is that the direction you go there? Yeah, that's interesting because that's really such a new thing. Um, we've been in Spotify for only like two or three weeks now. And it's the first time we've heard ads on our own podcast was sort of like a little bit disturbing for us. Poor ABC people who don't live in the real world, right? <laughs> so um, is it, was it a business plan? Um, we, we weren't sort of, understanding at that time and when we made it that there were going to necessarily be ads on locally published shows. I think the way we were thinking about it back then was that the ads would only be heard on people who were listening overseas. A different models are, you know, been arrived at for Spotify. Yeah, I, I think that's still the only platform where you will hear ads on our stuff so far. And I guess as long as we have, like for the charter, the ABC charter, you know, as long as we have a free option for everybody, which is ABC, the ABC Listen app. We're okay with trying to monetize our shows in the longer term to be sustainable into the longer term, I guess, because the other thing is that there aren't many people in Australia being able to make these kind of shows because they are expensive. This is an expensive show. A lot of people involved along the way, you know, a team of essentially about 10 people are all up, you know, and, and then if you dial in the, the digital ancillary stuff that we make online, there's a whole bunch more. You know, it took 
Ollie nine months of his time to make that show. And we were all pretty full-time for the core team, pretty full-time for that whole time. Well, welcome to Spotify, because I heard that took more than nine months. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a long road, that one. We'd been advocating for that for about five years. You know, we don't move that fast at the ABC, but to be fair, there's a lot of there's a lot of things to put into place with a partnership like that with a commercial entity. You've got to make sure the taxpayer dollars get spent in the right way and, and also that we can keep the integrity of our shows. So that, that's still a work in progress, you know, how those ads are going to um, impact on our material over time, you know. What's it been like, this uh, came out September last year. This year's been a bit of a challenge for everyone. You're coming into season five. Has that kind of delayed what you've been doing there? or? Yeah, quite a few a few things delayed us and um, a lot of it was internal sort of budget chaos, which I think most people who follow the ABC heard a bit about. Essentially because the Unravel was a a one-off piece of funding, you know, in a competitive round when it started. It was also ended up being a finite bunch of money and we had to go looking for the money to make it ongoing. So that became a bit of an issue when our budget envelope didn't didn't expand. And, yeah, essentially that feed, unfortunately, has been fallow and won't have a new season till June. July. Yeah, so that would have been a long time between drinks, right? For a very successful podcast. Episode numbers wise, one of the most popular um, ABC podcasts. We're kind of back on track, so I can be thankful for that. Why do you think true crime podcasts are so popular? When Julian and I embarked on this journey of talking to all the award winners from true crime in this year's podcast awards, I was apprehensive because I thought we were going down a deep, dark wormhole of missing people and cold cases. And it's been fun, entertaining stories the whole way through. Mm. But why do you think true crime's so popular? Well, yeah, it's a good question because I think it's long, long been the most enduring genre in podcast land. I think the main basic reason is is that essentially it's like a campfire story, right? You know, it's sort of this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And it's also got a very central, easy premise. It's like who done it? It can be as simple as that. And that because you've got such a great driver People just want to know the answer and they will stick with you. They love the detail. There's a couple of different camps, I think, of listeners when it comes to true crime. You know, there's there's people, Tim Roxborough, who I lauded before as our insanely talented supervising producer, came up with a term for those people because we knew that we would get some of those people. He called them the stabbies. And... <laughs> And the reason was that they're, they're the people who really love the kind of gory, the goriest details about, you know, really dark, violent crimes. They want to know all about how the body was stabbed that many times. And it's sort of like this vicarious pleasure of, I'm so glad that won't happen to me. Exactly I think right. that's some of I think that's some of the pleasure of those stories. It's also, I think, wanting to understand like the dark side of human nature. I think that's another big driver for, yeah, you know, right. for horror, for for true crime. I mean, the true crime's been going for so many years as a as a massive sort of TV genre as well. There's about like 30 crime channels in the US, you know, there used to be a few years ago. And now that's sort of transferred to podcasts. There's dozens and dozens of those kind of people just retelling details of cold cases as though that version of true crime. And they have big audiences, you know, and so there's some people who do that really well. A case file is a great Aussie example of a, like a kick-ass podcast that's just done so well across time because they they shape the stories really well they're, they're beautifully told they they do their own research and um yeah now they're kind of top top pick in spotify so i think the other side of it is you know documentary investigations and that's where unravel has been sitting and i think 
people are eternally kind of attracted to those stories because you, if you can dig up something fresh, if you can solve a cold case or, or the promise of solving it, the, the biggest problem with true crime stories, I guess, that are unsolved is trying to actually put enough effort into getting an ending, you know, and that's generally the one thing that people complain about, you know, when they, they're sort of complaining about true crime, they go, oh, no, but they... They never had an ending for that story, you know. So that that's that is always a challenge, and and I guess then there's the third thing that we've been looking at is actually just trying to mess with the genre or add some other elements to the genre to keep it fresh, you know, or to keep it feeling like it's not stuck in the same rut. Which I guess is also there's been a, a quite a big change of people's appetite for like dead girls, you know, and like that that those violence against women stories have really kind of difficult to tell now because it's sort of like you know is there a new angle on that or is that an old trope and you know there's something kind of purient about the details of sort of young women and bad things happening to them I guess that's where you know we're all very cognizant of that and not falling into those trap but I think the other surprising thing about the true crime audience is that from anecdotally and from some of the data that we have is that like a lot of them are women and younger women Usually true crime's like the gateway drug to podcasting, right? Which is great because, you know, we, we really want to be there and I think that's very true. But, yeah, that there's a lot of young women who love these stories and I think, that again, that's that vicariousness about, oh, my God, I hope that doesn't happen to me. And it's something about having felt real danger, you know, and I've had this told to me by women friends of mine that we, as blokes, don't, completely understand how feeling vulnerable like that is a real thing and perhaps listening to it in a controlled way that there's some comfort in that it's never been properly explained to me for this type of narrative non-fiction podcast what do you think is the optimal episode length um yeah that's a really good question we, we debate this a lot i think over the last you know three or four years we've we've thought the city commute is like a nice benchmark so the 20 20 to 30 minute episodes work for us and we think work for the audience in that we want to provide something that they can snack in one one sitting right so i think the trouble with those longer shows the hour-long shows is i mean i when i'm listening I'm, i'm never getting through them in one sitting you know so something like this american life that which actually even puts their shows into chapters they they sort of thought about that i think in terms of how people get through their show so i think yeah, 20 to 30 is, is like the sweet spot, but we never want to, you know, what we're also saying is that we're going to hold someone to that show for as long as they, they're they going to be there. With the 11th, there were sort of episodes that blew out to about 50 minutes and we always thought, oh, that's almost getting too long where people will get people frustrated. But if the story's good enough, you know, no, no one writes you and complains that that episode was too long if you've done your job right, right? What's the audience been like across these different shows? I mean, do you, do you have a sense that some people carry through the whole lot of Unravel, the whole franchise, and then move over to the other ones? Or do you think they're quite segmented? No, we get a lot of people who, once they find... That's that's the great great thing about starting a new season, um, is once we've... If they've found we've made a big noise about the new season... I mean, Unravel brought absolute shit ton of new people to to the strand who then went backwards and, and found the other shows it's really fantastic when you hear that because um that was also the idea of unbirthing a brand 
storytelling that we could put different seasons in an anthology because then you build your audience along the way and and they're there for the next one right so now we've got um hundreds of thousands of people waiting for the next episode of unravel hopefully they haven't all ditched us you know because we haven't been there but you know we'll occasionally drop in a promo so the feed's still alive they do go looking for for the other shows so that there is an advantage there what kind of podcast are you listening to ah that's a great question i do like to sort of keep trying out any of the new series you know anything that i think is a, a documentary so i will be listening to you know whatever's next but i i guess i've got a couple of different listening habits and uh, a lot of them are sort of based around old favorites i, I mean my all-time favorite podcast is um a gimlet one called heavyweight jonathan goldstein i think he's a kind of brilliant writer he sort of does gonzo you know with people's lives or unfinished business you know so it's also a great simple concept sort of going back in time to fix people's lives getting someone's cds back yeah that's right <laughs> what a great episode like he can sort of make something out of nothing but there's really magical poignant moments and people do have an, a real life change because of his intervention he's essentially kind and funny and nerdy guy who writes really beautifully and um he's just been really consistent about doing I guess applying, it's also what I love is applying really kind of quite rigorous journalistic, you know, strategies to a, a really kind of silly story in a way or a really minor thing in someone's life you think shouldn't probably deserve it. But the result is something quite spectacular and fresh and he just keeps coming up with it. So I think that would be my all-time favourite. You know, I listen to the, the news podcast. I'm, I'm dipping to, to the daily, you know, every now and then. I've I've got weekend listening favourites too. It's when I'm I'm just trying to get away from work and and news, and that'd be things like my two favourite go tos are um, the Bugle, Andy Zaltzman, people like Alice Fraser, like regular guests, who just I think got me through just sanely the last six month, a Trump era life, which was just I was just dreading, thinking I'm going to have to. What am I going to do if, if this happens? And they just made me laugh through the darkest, darkest days. You know, it's when we want comedians, right? We want comedians, musos, and maybe even poets are going to save us mm. through the darkest times, right? I don't think anyone else is going to be required because there won't be anything else to do, right? So I think I thank Andy Zaltzman and his crew for endlessly making me laugh to, at the at the worst things that were happening. And then there's a really nerdy show that the um, QI people do called No Such Thing as a Fish. It's like science nerds do facts. And it's a very simple format. There's four very funny, very smart people who write the show QI. They're from the writer's room. And they, they birthed their own podcast because they just had so much material going on. And now it's been a, it's, a, it's like an institution They when they can, not in COVID, but they, they mostly do the show live and they've got followers and they've travelled all around the world. And essentially just four people nerding out on really silly science facts that they've come across in the week. And they do deep, deep dives on, on the sort of silliest science they can find it's almost dr carl territory in a way but um they're very funny english people finally like to just finish up and just ask for a little bit of advice for people starting out in podcasts or mm. already in podcasting you've given a lot already but if you did have to just give a couple little more tidbits maybe for someone who's looking to get in to the industry mm -hmm. um where would you go i think my main piece of advice would be think about access you know something that you know about or have a friend or a family friend or a, somebody you met who has access to a story that nobody else 
has, you've really got to bring something to the table that no one else has got, right? There's so much competition out there, especially when you're a young story maker. So I guess it's looking for something you're passionate about, something that only you can tell, and yeah, make sure it's something that no one else has got. Great advice. Yeah. Ian, thank you very much, mate, for your time. It's much appreciated. I had a good time. Thank you, Ian, for taking the time to sit down with us at Behind the Podcast to talk about Unravel Snowball. Over the next three episodes, we'll continue our journey down the true crime podcast rabbit hole with Mark Fennell's Nut Jobs, Paul Cochran's Childers, and Richard Baker's The Last Voyage of the Pongsu. I hope you enjoyed our conversation.